This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to welcome everyone tonight to Safe Harbor. Uh, this is our fourth panel this year, a series put on by the foundation, the Berry Good Food Foundation, of which I'm the founder, and there are several board members and, and others related to the foundation here tonight. Tonight, we're bringing this panel to you in conjunction with the San Diego Bay Wine and Food Festival, and we have some of the folks from that here tonight. Thank you. This is part of what we call the Future Thought Leaders series, where we try to really bring issues to the forefront, connecting consumers with their food sources, helping people understand the larger implications of the food choices that they make. Uh, so this is Safe Harbor, Sustainable Seafood, and we're going to talk about myths, truths, truths, that's hard to say, and misinformation. Um, we're gonna get, I'm going to introduce my panel in a second, but before I do, I would really like to thank all of the folks who helped make this night happen, who donated food, time, labor, drinks, and so on. Uh, that would be Isabel Cruz from Barrio Star, Isabel's Cantina, and Coffee Cup. Isabel's been working the last several days to put this food together. Uh, also, David and Jessica Waite, who've been back in the back, and they are from Wet Noodle, Wrench and Rodent. Uh, they're probably still working back there. Thank you to them. Of course, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have our fish from Catalina Offshore Products. Uh, thank you. And, and, uh, and Fishbone. And a big, uh, also a big thank you to Specialty Produce for bringing a lot of the extra produce that we didn't glean from my yard and the other farms locally. Uh, Waste Not San Diego, who, if there's any food left tonight, will be collecting it and giving it to food pantries here in San Diego. We have yet, actually, to have any leftover food after one of these panels, but maybe this will be the night because I saw the stockpile in the kitchen. So uh, Also, Pow Wow, who sets the stage up for us and tries to make it an inviting living room. We want you to feel like we're just sitting around having a conversation, though that side of the room is a little bit more full than this side. Uh, Solar Rain, our good friend BJ Kerr, who was here earlier. Thank you, BJ, always. Brought the water in the back that's in the dispensers. Don't know if you know Solar Rain, but it is the country's only... Uh, uh, desalinated ocean water, bottled water, powered wholly by solar power, and instead of returning the salty brine to the ocean, he makes sea salt and sells it to our restaurant. So, thank you. So now, without further ado, let me introduce my panel. On the far right, I have Paula Silvia, who is the Aquaculture Blue Tech Program Manager from the Port of San Diego. Uh, she has a Master's of Science in Aquaculture from the University of Stirling, Scotland, uh, former research fish biologist at Southwest Fisheries here at NOAA. Thank you for coming, Paula. <laughs> Next, we have uh, Rob Ruiz, a, an incredibly talented local chef who actually was awarded San Diego Union Tribune Chef of the Year just recently. That's correct. Yes, well-deserved. Um, he's the chef owner of the Land and Water Company, outspoken advocate for responsible, uh, responsibly sourced and traceable seafood, actually invented the edible QR code that you can use to follow and figure out where your fish came from, and he is also the winner of the 2016 Ocean Awards uh, from the Blue Marine Foundation and Boat International. So, yeah. Thank you, Rob. 
Next, we have Heidi Dewar, who is a marine biologist at Southwest Fisheries at NOAA. Her expertise is in tuna and other large migratory species. She has a PhD in marine biology from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, with a focus, again, on tuna and other large migratory species. So we'll be talking a lot about that, given the history of San Diego as the one-time tuna capital of the world. Thank you for coming. And on my immediate right is Rick Moonen, also a very well-known chef, celebrated chef, uh, the godfather of sustainable seafood. He's a founding member of Seafood Choices Alliance, founding member, no heckling, please, founding member, Blue Ribbon Task Force for Seafood Watch Program, and a finalist at Bravo's Top Chef Masters. So thank you very much for, for coming tonight. On my left, I have Amro Hamdoun. He's an associate professor of marine biology with Scripps Institute of Oceanography, UCSD, postdoctoral fellow, Hopkins Marine Station at Stanford, uh, marine cell biology and pollution uh, within, uh, with a focus and expertise on toxicity. So thank you, Amro. Then we have Corinne Bush, who's the Executive Vice President of Certified Nutrition Specialist, Board Member, American College of Nutrition, Contributing Author, Obesity, Epidemiology, Pathophysiology, and Prevention. Uh, thank you, and Corinne, for coming back and joining us. Next, we have Sarah Rathbone, who's a co-founder and port representative from Doc to Dish, specifically Doc to Dish LA, the West Coast operative. Uh, she's the founder of Community Seafood. She has a Master of Science from UCSB in Marine Science, and she's a crabber, clammer, and fisherman. And she told me fisherman is the gender-neutral phrase, and that's what I'll be using tonight. <laughs> And finally, a man who needs no introduction is Tommy Gomes. <laughs> of, <laughs> he's a fifth-generation fisherman from right here in San Diego. As he told me earlier this week, his grandfather was one of the founding members of this Portuguese hall. Uh, he's a fishmonger currently at Catalina Seafood. Look, the bottom line, I'm sorry that the bios are so short, but quite frankly, I don't want to waste any more time to talk about it. But everyone on this stage is extremely well qualified uh, to be up here talking about this important issue, and we're going to... Let it begin with, you know, let's talk about what does it mean, sustainable seafood? Can, as, as, as President George W. Bush said uh, fa relatively famously a few years back, can the human being and fish coexist peacefully, right? That is the question of the night. And by coexist, we mean eat them in ways that doesn't, you know, end their existence, right? So let's talk about that. You know, where are we in fishing? And what about this community? Tommy, you're, you're a longtime sort of resident of this particular community and also a, a conservationist. So... Talk to me about your experience here. Well, with the, with the American fishermen, you, you asked what sustainability means. And for me, it means the harvesting of good, healthy stocks in a manner which is non-destructive to the habitat with a minimal bycatch. And if there is a bycatch, we need to find a way to market that bycatch. A fish doesn't come out of the ocean in a box. It's got tails and it travels the whole planet. And I grew up with the Gordons fishermen, and that guy lied because fish doesn't come out of the ocean in a box. It doesn't come with lemon pepper, and it doesn't show up in your grocer's freezer. It just doesn't happen. And so utilization of a whole fish plays a big part, and we've lost that touch in America. We want fish white, flaky, no skin, no bones, no bloodline, and that's just totally not how it comes out of the water. So we're wasting a lot of fish and a lot of protein. And as you saw today on the back table, Everybody here ate some amazing fish, an opa, 
that has six different kinds of meat in it, yet everybody just wants that center of the cut and a beautiful piece of fish. And that's not how it is. The uglier the fish I have found throughout traveling, the uglier the fish, the better it tastes. That's just the way it is. We decided today we need to start an ugly fish movement, just like the ugly fruit and veg movement, right? Because the truth is, like, and this, there's two parts to that, what, you've, what you've just said, which the one is like using the whole fish, right, instead of just the filet as if they come cut and squared. And the second part is which fish, like beyond the three or four fish that we're most comfortable with. We talked about this earlier this week. What is it? Like, how, how do you manage that, you know, original desire from a customer who wants, like, salmon, you know, sea bass, blank, blank, right? How do you move them out of that comfort zone to try something new? Creativity. I mean, you have to be creative. And you have to have a well-educated staff who can bring the story to the guest. Not everybody wants to hear the story. You might, two people might want to just do business. But when a customer can ask, what is that? I've never heard of that before. And you can tell them what it is. Skate wings. You know, well, for instance, uh, I went to a customer and they said, so what, what are skate wings? And I said, well, you know, you, you, and everybody seems to know this story about punching a hole in a skate and selling it as a scallop. So I said to them, well, it tastes like scallop. And they're like, oh, okay. And they got it. You know, and it doesn't have to be any much more difficult than that. You know, as long as it's tasty and they get it, they'll come back for more. So, you know, I think we overthink it. I think as a, uh, a mass uh, consumer, we... Uh, have a narrow uh, scope on what's for dinner. You know, all this bycatch that, uh, that Tommy was talking about is, you know, a major waste. You know, I mean, there's, there's um, several, uh, four major categories. I think it's overfishing, bycatch, habitat destruction, and aquaculture. But that's not necessarily a concern, but it's a big discussion because, I mean, it's, it's a major part of the recipe of the future of uh, food security from my perspective, so it's interesting. Any, oh, go ahead, please. Oh, well, no, I just please. wanted to say really quickly that that concept of storied fish is so important when we talk about promoting sustainability because, because what we're really doing is trying to create that storyline, and that storyline is so dependent on us having a firmer grasp on the resource that we're utilizing and the person who's fishing that resource. So if we can really shrink those chains of custody from the boat to the restaurant or from the boat to your home kitchen, you are going to get a closer connection to that resource and make a more sustainable decision. So There, there, is, there is a romance of the sea, and every fish has a story, mm-hmm. and we need to tell it. Rob, you're, you started doing things that were way ahead of time. I, I was fortunate enough because I listened to brilliant people like you. You know what I mean? I wouldn't go one. so far as saying brilliant. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, we, that, that was the number one thing for me, you know, is, is I, where, where is this from? What did it eat? Who caught it? And that's the only way I know I can serve it with confidence that I'm knowing rewarding my guests with the respect that they're paying me by visiting my, you know, my hotel, my restaurant, whatever it is. And I think the, the latest thing is like, like Rick, you're saying is that it's, telling the story of the fish, but also that, you know, it's not just salmon, cod, tuna, these, it seems to be, you know, like the, Alan Greenspan wrote the book, The Four Fish, you know, yep. it's not just these four particular species. What I've found is that learning more about, like, we're, I'm sure we'll touch on the tuna dockside market, but that here we are in a region, we're in, you know, Southern California, we have a, a variety of species available to us all year round that we can go literally uh, uh, with less than 100 miles away and bring to our tables. And, and all of those creatures, from the urchin to, to cockles to, 
to you know whatever to the uh, sablefish or whatever it brings to the table, if it is our job to serve these creatures in season at the peak of their health and the peak of freshness from the right person at the right time, then that is part of, you know, that predicates the rest of the story that we're trying to tell mm-hmm. is that it's not, you know, why would I fly a salmon from, you know, 2,000 miles away when I can serve a, a superior quality product from someone that's in my backyard and I can give them a... a, 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 a you know, a better price for it. They can a better wage for their cost of living. You know? But you're you're respecting the honor of the species itself. You know, exactly. there's a love there when you when you go that distance and and you're thinking that local seafood with the story and there's an you honor the species with love and and serving that platter. I Absolutely, mean, that's the name of the game. And, and there's one point that I think, like Jay from Ironside, we were talking about tonight at the events that we're doing, is like, guess what? I don't have salmon. I don't, it's not on my menu. And people are going to yelp me and they're going to talk smack. They're like, oh, he didn't have salmon. <laughs> what was this guy thinking? He's running a restaurant. I was like, hey, you know what? It's out of season and it's not in our local waters. But what I do have is, you know, X, Y, and Z. If people don't think, it's interesting. I mean, we, for two things. One is we don't tend to think seasonally as much when we talk about seafood. And that's just because we're probably not thinking right. And secondly, we had these conversations earlier this week. You know, when we travel to other places, we understand and accept that, you know, we're going to get this food in season at that place in the, in, in the whatever the distinctive, you know, cuisine of a location is. But for some reason, that identity here in San Diego isn't as strong. I mean, you know, we, we still want the same food we could get in Cleveland and New York, you know, any time of the year. And, and sort of helping us redefine, you know, what our culinary history and story is, is, is hugely important. We live in the, we not only have, you know, do we have this incredible bounty of the sea, but we live in the farmiest community in America. I mean, the fact that we don't have a real local, regional, seasonal cuisine is, 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 is something that we have to work on, yeah? I think um, letting the fishermen dictate what is in season two, relying on that resource is so important. And I'm even having a situation on the docks in Southern California right now where I have to educate the fishermen to let them know that whatever it is that they bring in, even if they've never marketed it before, it's something that I have a market for. Because the chefs that I work with do exactly what you guys do, which is whatever is coming in off that dock, we will be creative, we will be innovative, we will tell the story, and we will, we will make that fish the, the hot new thing on our menu instead of just relying on these four species. There's such a par- Sorry, Tommy, there's like to. such a parallel here. This is the exact thing that we say when we talk about let the farmer and the seasonal produce dictate the menu. And, you know, we're all still working on that, but it, it's the exact same parallel. And we have to really think, what does it mean? What does seasonal fish mean? What is it? And, and is there also the cover crop rotation concept of seafood? You know, the, as you said, for example, with uni, when you started, you know, it was the pest that you had to address and then you turn it into a menu item, right? Like, are you having that same kind of you know, approach. Well, I think, I mean, there's plenty of chefs out here. It's an unbelievable talent that's in the gallery, if you will. And it, when you bring in a new product like that, it fires that passion. And that's why you guys do what you do, is because of that passion and to honor that animal and to present that to your customers. It's, it's a passion that gets ignited, and that's why you do what you do. It certainly isn't for the pay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's true. 
You know, I'm going to fall back on what I said earlier. It's, uh, it's about telling the story. And quite frankly, everybody has to participate in this story, not just the people sitting on this panel. Everybody in this audience and everybody that you talk to has to participate in this story in order for it to work. 75% of our world is covered in ocean. You know, and we think that we can throw whatever we want into it and we're going to get whatever we, we want back out of it and it's going to be perfect when, it, when we take it out. That's not true. We know that for a fact now. You know, and how can you participate? I get this question asked all the time and it's really asking three simple questions. Whether you even know what the answer means or not, it doesn't matter because you're participating in moving along an effort of, 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 of communicating the story. So you have to ask, what is it? What is that on the menu? You know, what is Corvina? Mm. And they're going to tell you. It's, oh, it's, it's a drum fish. It just comes out. We call it white bass here in the Pacific. Whatever. They're going to give you an answer. Okay, where's it from? So what is it? Where's it from? And how was it caught or, or procured if it's an aquaculture product? You know, and by asking those three questions, well, they answer, they, you may have answers that, doesn't, that won't mean a thing to you, but what you did is maybe you were the second or the third person that asked that question that day. And they're going to find out. They're going to ask their purveyor. They're going to ask their fishermen. They're going, to, they're going to ask their boss. You know, people want to know what a dry scallop is. I never heard of it before. And that's how the story continues. You know, no one hugs a fish. Fish are, ooh, yeah. Oh, I, I, hug I do. I hug fish all the time. Paddle, I don't know about you guys. Aside, you you hugged a fish. Ra- ra- raise your hand. It's all right. <laughs> so, it's, so, I mean, it, it, you know, but everybody knows the omega-3 story, and, 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 and seafood is delicious, and we all know that. So, and, and, and this community is unique. We're right on the water, you know. So the story is easier here. As it gets further into the middle of this country of ours, the story gets a little bit more stressed, a little bit less uh, uh, embraceable, you know. So we have to make a big noise here and let, let people come here and eat here, I guess, is probably one of them. But also, if we want this to be a nice, smooth um, concept across the United States, we have to do a better job of celebrating our successes. We don't do that as NGOs and, 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 and the environmental communities. You know, we're fighting. I was part of Gibbs Swordfisher Break campaign. And, and, then, and then governmental changes happen globally. And, and, and North Atlantic Swordfish, that was on the brink of commercial extinction within a very short period of time because of regulatory changes, had a rebound. And now it's, it's, it's sustainable. Does anybody know that? No. Because they go, okay, next. So it's all bad. It's all negative messaging to the, to the, to the, the mass uh, population. And we know the answers, but we've got to celebrate and scream, good job. Yeah, now we can move on to maybe the next thing and the next thing. It's all about the story is all I'm trying to say. What you said is so true that, you know, that we were like, oh, my God, this, this is the problem. It's swordfish or it's mercury or it's that. And then that's resolved and we move on and we don't know the crises is solved and there's just more crises. And both of these things have come up in conversations this week. And I was just thinking, what about this sort of both of us, actually, uh, overfished, adequately fished, underfished, you know, talk about these issues. Like, what do we know? What do we know in the global experience and what do we know in the local experience? The U.S. probably has some of the best um, management measures in place. There are a bunch of different measures like the Magnuson-Stevens Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. There's a Migratory Bird Act. So we have a whole suite of measures that we are bound by law to abide by and to manage our fish. And um, it's a bit technical, but there are two ways that you sort of look at how a population's doing. Is one, whether it's 
overfished, so the population is below a certain level, and the other is whether you're doing overfishing, so you have a declining trend in the population. So those are kind of the two ways that we assess populations. On a global level, globally, things are not so great. Probably 70 to 80 percent of populations that are fished are not sustainably fished. In the U.S., we're actually doing a really good job, and those numbers are closer to 80 to 90 percent of populations are doing fine. And there's continuing, there's an upward trajectory, so we're doing better and better all the time. So, it, you know, tying in with what these guys are saying, really the best thing that we can do for our fishermen and for our fish and for all sorts of species around the globe is to buy local. Um, there's one thing that a lot of people don't think about and it's something we call um, transfer effects. And if our, pop, uh, right now, a lot of our fishermen have, are, are, go, are retiring and there aren't a lot of people replacing them. So we have a declining trend in you know, the supply and the landings of fish. The problem is there's still a lot of demand, so a lot more fish are being imported. And those fish are coming from fisheries that don't have the same regulatory framework that the U.S. has. So you end up with every pound of swordfish on your plate resulting in the death of more turtles, for example, than a pound of swordfish that was caught locally. And that's something I think that's often lost in the conversation. And tell everyone, if they don't know, what's the percentage of fish that is imported in the United States that we consume? It's like 90%. It's 90%, yeah. 90%. And then, and, then, and then the further breakdown from that is we've got 90% imported, 50% of that is farmed, another 40% is from wild sources, 35 40%, but those wild sources are, are unregulated, unreported, and often illegal, which means that they're utilizing, it's almost like the, the classic concept of pirates that use slave labor on vessels. And this sounds, you know, apocalyptic and dramatic, but that's where the, a lot of our seafood that we consume in this country is coming from. And it's really important to get that across. I, th I think one of, the, one of the other factors in that is the percentage of that that's coming into this country that's not inspected by the FDA. And which is? And then we have the pirated 98%. 98%. 98%. 2% inspection. So that's why it's important to go all the way back to how we started. You have to know your source. You have to ask questions. And, I, and you read the label. And, and again, you know, you read the label of what's in your dog and cat food, but you don't read the label of what you're putting in your own body. So educate yourself on where your food is coming from, whether it's the fish or the cow or the chicken or whatever it is. But read, act, what is it? Think globally, act locally. You know, um, and with our fishing, the way things are going, um, I mean, there's a bunch of fishermen in this room. Some guys that I've fished with 20 years ago that are sitting in here. We're a dying breed. And the reason why we're a dying breed is, is also because we're, we're passing on and the generation is not following through. But we've, we're obsolete. You don't need me. You don't need my tradition, my heritage, my knowledge, my sea time, because electronics have taken over our oceans in such a vast way that we can ping bird schools from seven miles away, that you can go to Walmart and for 120 bucks, you can buy a fish finder, put it on a kayak, go outside La Jolla Shores, find a rock and pound that thing until there's no more rockfish. 
So there's no tradition there. There's nothing there. There's no seed time or knowledge. And these are things that are electronics and, and with the fads. I mean, you've, you study the high seas migratory species of swordfish and tuna and the fads. There's 150,000 of those things floating out there in the middle of the ocean that are controlled by satellites. Uh, these are amazing. And we're over harvesting small fish. And I was one of them. That's what I wanted you to get to when we were talking about fit. No, uh, uh, that's right. Everybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we would we would make a set and we'd get 200 ton of fish. When you it. say we, you're talking about your because Tommy has fished not just in the United States, but how oh, many different I fished, countries? I was lucky enough throughout my career. I fished all over the world. Um, and we would make a set and we would, you know, we'd put 200 ton in the center of the net. And we'd purse it up and it was too small. and We'd roll it over the corks. 200 ton. And at one time, San Diego had over 275 tuna boats. We were the biggest in the world. We had 11 canneries spread out between here and San Pedro. We fed 90% of the world tuna came from San Diego. And now it's a skeleton of what it once was. But there is a rebound and there's an awareness, obviously. We have an awareness here. There, you guys didn't come here for the free, well, maybe you can't for the free. <laughs> They're still here. <laughs> But no, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. What I'm saying is, as our population grows, our planet is becoming smaller. Well, that's actually the perfect segue into the questions that we are getting on, on the Twitter, as my mom would say. Uh, actually, relate to sort of how do we continue to feed the, the, the fish-eating desires of our growing population if we're, in many instances, sort of at maximum yields, and that's where we get into aquaculture and we know the stats, you know, 91% of the seafood that we eat comes from somewhere else, you know, half of it's farmed, half of it's commercially fished. And, and, and both of those cases, they're coming from countries that don't have the same regulations as ours. So <clears throat> we have a food security issue and we know that the oceans can only produce so much. We're going to have 9 billion people pretty soon. And there's going to be even more of a gap to fill the seafood um, demand. So a lot of it's going to come from aquaculture. A lot more of it's going to come from sustainable fisheries that are on the rebound. And, and you know, within our country, we've got to get serious about, you know, creating, um, you know, enabling legislation that allows aquaculture to happen here for to create more of a domestic supply. So wait, right- but what, there's a reason, right? I mean, we, there might be a slide that we have. We'll see if it shows up. But about sort of customer mm, opinions about aquaculture. Uh, highly rate fresh catch, not so much on the aquaculture. And to some extent, that's because there have been some bad experiences, in, maybe in other places, but certainly true. How will we deal with that, and how will it be different but, here? Well, it's different here because our rules and regulations are, are very stringent, and the farms that are in place are the cleanest farms in the world. So, you know, they, you know, we don't have any bad examples of farms in the United States. So, but we need to figure out, you know, pathways forward to produce, you know, there's not going to be too much more growth on land and fresh water in aquaculture because land is scarce and water is scarce. So there'll be some, there'll be improvements in production yields and efficiencies for the farms that are grown, you know, inland or in freshwater places. But the real growth is going to come from the marine industry. So, and it's no joke. And, you know, it's a fact. This area of the world in Southern California and this region, even including Mexico, is the best place in the country to grow, to grow our own seafood. So we have a great selection of species. We're uh, excellent climate. We don't get, you know, a lot of, 
you know, really bad weather, and, and we're close to the market, and so it, and it's all and it's local. So local is coming into our local market, but just the United States is local <laughs> to California. So you know, we're not importing from tilapia from 3,000 miles away or salmon or whatever the other species are. So it's a food security issue, and we, we will grow with that. Like, that's where the demand will be, will, will be fit. So, you know, it's a really important piece of the puzzle, and, <clears throat> and it might not be seasonal. So, you know, the, the, the advantage of aquaculture is that, you know, you can have product year-round, and it can be produced sustainably from egg to market, and we can tell the story. So we need to do a better job of that also, but to demonstrate that it can be done and, you know, show the public that, you know, all these scary stories, they're not, you know, they're not, they're, they're bad examples. It's not in the interest of any farmer to do things bad anymore. You know, consumers are demanding, you know, transparency and traceability. So here you go. Let's do it ourselves. Let's show how we can do it. And San Diego is a, you know, a leader in hatchery production of, of, marine, of marine species and freshwater species. You know, our country right now produces, we speak in tonnage, so we produce... 500,000 tons of um, aquaculture production to feed our, our domestic supply. Actually, a lot of that gets exported also. But to feed our demand moving forward, and it's NOAA, NOAA stats, you know, for the next 20 to 50 years, we're looking at a, a, a domestic demand of 4 million tons. So just produced from aquaculture. So not even what the wild contribution is. So that's a lot. I mean, and actually globally, it's not a lot, but in our country, like that's a big, you know, fold leap to get to. So we're not going to do it overnight. It's not going to be industrial factory farm, you know, type of situations. It's going to be measured, controlled and well-regulated. And it's not always just, uh, you know, fish farm to table either. You're using it to support fisheries. Yes. So a lot of the aquaculture that, you know, aquaculture has many purposes. Food production is one restoration is another. So, you know, a lot of the programs, there's a lot of really good examples in California and San Diego to produce animals for restoration. Anything from, you know, abalone to white sea bass. So lots of good examples of growing animals and releasing them back in the wild to support commercial fisheries. I think, I think one thing that you're also um, giving jobs to the displaced fishermen. The, That's you know, an important... Scientists and are not going to run fish farms you know it's going to be guys that have you know and gals that have the skill set you know to to operate and you know live on the water and grow you know you're growing your food out there it's just a dip it's you know you know fisherman to farmer but you know all the all the other qualities are there they just want to be it's on the not. water they just exactly. want to be on the water and you know we know we know that you know of the all the years i've been doing this in, in this in this region there's a lot of there's a lot of guys that they don't really want to have anything to do with it and that's okay because they're you know it's their choice, but there's there's a lot more that want to participate or participate in the off season, or have some type of work that you know can stabilize their incomes. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to for displaced fishermen or even those that aren't completely displaced to just have more opportunities. I think a really good take home message, and it kind of like sums it all up, is that we need to start resurrecting the know your fisherman culture, and that applies to the know your fish farmer culture. 
So if you guys go out there to the restaurants or you go to your fish market and you ask the questions, what is the fish, uh, where was it caught, and how was it caught? But, it, it, but if they say it's an aquaculture product, don't just turn your nose up at it. This is an opportunity for all of us to grow and learn. And if it's domestic aquaculture, that makes a huge difference considering all of the regulations we have in place to ensure the, the safe and sustainable production of product. But, you know, you, you talk about um, transparency, and I think uh, for myself and my clients as a nutritionist, one thing that's hard to grasp is really what's going on in aquaculture. It's, it's very, very difficult to find the information on what is in the fish feed. And we know that uh, in, in years past, and, and still in, in many aquaculture environments, there are, there's canola and soy and wheat, and there's formaldehyde that's preserving it. And so I, for one, would really appreciate a way to find out more. And maybe, Paula, you can tell us, because we've had some problems um, with I, that. I just think that it, like, it, it's coming. That kind of transparency from that, uh, from that level of the supply chain is coming, because it's demand. You know, Before it was, uh, the mixture is proprietary, or right. this is the type of fish we're using for the fish meal, this is the type of oil we're using for this. So they have to, they have to respond more responsibly. And, and there's international laws that are driving that. I have right to interject now. something on aquaculture, if I can. Um, <clears throat> I've been in this industry 40 years, and you know, I've seen aquaculture as pretty much a new uh, introduction during that time that I've been in the hospitality industry. I remember Norwegian salmon just being, holy smokes, this incredible bullet of a fish you know, in a white styrofoam box, which was something new at the Fulton Fish Market. You know, and um, it was amazing. Then I found out later on in my career that uh, aquaculture is very bad for the environment. There's a lot of chemicals. And I didn't want to hear it. I mean, I was like, I was mad. You know, they started uh, farmed in dangerous uh, campaigns in, in the Northwest. Understandable. That's an Atlantic salmon in the Pacific, a whole different area there. But Atlantic salmon, number one selling fin fish in the world, um, is, is, has, has, is pretty new as a science. So a lot of mistakes were made. Trust me, major horrible and the bad messaging went out and i was one of the big voices saying i'm taking this off my menu i didn't serve farm-raised atlantic salmon for 10 years i told everybody wild salmon there's five species still alive in the northwest you know char you know arctic char like if you can get a wild grade if not recirculating tanks awesome you know and 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 you know steelheads uh, trout as well all these things so people can get their pink salmon you know in in their diet a pink fish in their diet well a lot of changes happen because big mouth saying stop it, like myself and a lot of other chefs and Seafood Watch and other, other regulatory and you know, people that give assessments, big companies have listened. And now you're seeing some branding. You're seeing some branding because there's so much complication to it all. It just wears people down. The consumer doesn't want to know about fish in, fish out, this and that, and, and escapes, and, and what's in the food and all of that. I just want to know, is it sustainable? Can I serve it to my family? And safe. That's, that's all I want to know. So there's more branding. you got King, you got Verlasa, you got True North. You're getting these brands. And so if you can wrap your head around... The fact that they're doing a great job so you don't have to worry about the 900 things that are involved. Let the uh, people that you trust, you know, whether it's a chef, trust me, (laughs) I'm not a crook. No, but the the reality of it is, that's what I see changing is is, is more branding in this in respect because people want to know, what do I buy? So we got a good question from the audience, which is what percentage of aquaculture in the United States currently is responsibly done and and are there any abroad? And, And so I want to put that out to you. 
Or, if, if what was the second part of the question? So the first part is, you know, what percentage of aquaculture in the United States is responsibly oh, I done? I would say 100%. Me too. So 100%. That's a pretty good the, endorsement. The, the, law, the regulations and the, and the stewardship is, you know, it's like no other place. So, I mean, I'm responsible for trying to get, you know, more aquaculture operations installed in Southern California. And it is really hard and really tough. And, and, and that's okay. Like, we can, we can do things and, fo- and be in compliance. It's not, it's not difficult. So, so all your concerns about salmon, GMO salmon, feeding, the whole shebang, you know, coming, all of those, but I'm, I'm, but I'm asking you, are, have they been addressed, the concerns that you had before? Absolutely. Okay. The United States has always been a, a, a really good example of, of fisheries in general, aquaculture as well as wild. They really have been. Well, we're victim to, we're victim to, to what's being sold to well, the restaurants, you know. The problem what, is... Our integrity has already has backfired on us yeah. in, in, you know, in our history. You know, we said best farm-raised um, you know, catfish, U.S. farm-raised catfish. Fantastic product. And we're out there, and it costs a little bit uh, more in order to produce that incredibly, you know, well-read, well-raised uh, fish with integrity. And other countries go, oh, money to be made. We'll do it cheap. We'll just flood the market. And now these, fish, now these, now these farms go out of business. And the government doesn't get in the way and do anything about it. They, they say you can't, you're not allowed to import catfish. Fine, we'll call it something else. And they still import it. And that's what they so do. So that, that brings up a huge problem because it's we huge. do have domestic, domestic aquaculture that's responsible. And we, we do have domestic wild-caught fisheries that's responsible. But a, a topic that's received a lot of press recently is fish fraud and mislabeling of seafood products, which it turns out in Southern California, and I think it's just because we're such a huge importer here, is, is at a rate of 50%. So half of the fish that is labeled one thing is actually something entirely different. And that's, that's profit-driven, because if you can label a cheap fish as a more expensive fish, your profit is going to go up immeasurably. So then, then you go, 30% of the mislabeling is at the point of sale. So then, then you really have to trust the person that you're getting your fish from. But I want to get to you. Yeah, thank well, you. Well, tra- can, no, can, you, traceability yeah. and... Well, that's the thing I can say, like, in my world specifically, right? Like, I'm doing a sushi bar, you know? I'm doing all these fresh, particularly procured pieces of proteins, right? And on top of that, I do, you know, 15 tons a year, and I'm sure you you outdo me on that, you know, but at the same time, it is fish fraud. But the problem is, is that when you go to, you know, you go to a hundred other sushi bars or whatever you want to call them here in San Diego, you know, and you're going to go in there and they're going to be selling you, uh, uh, Escalar as a white tuna. And it's a, they paid $3 a pound. They're charging you $22 a pound prices. They're going to be serving you Saku tuna, you know, CO2 gas exhaust pipe tuna that, you know, isn't illegal in a lot of countries, but for some reason not here. So there's all these very small loopholes where you have a, a just a, you know, a, literally it could be an honest businessman who gets price lists from four different company co- companies and he looks at how he's going to try to survive because our margins are small. He's going to try to make the decision he possibly can. And unless he's been particularly inspired by coming to a panel like this or reading online or, or, or finding something in his past that wanted him to stick to his convictions and serve a, pr- a proper product, they're going to be like, hey, you know what? That local San Diego big eye that came from Catalina that stuff is awesome but you know what I'm going to grab this frozen stuff for half the price because I have to pay my rent 
This is what you they call I mean? the value action gap, right? The recent survey shows that nine out of 10 people are concerned about ocean sustainability and fish population, et cetera, et cetera. But just over 50% are willing to pay for it, right? So that, that's the dynamic we're talking well, well, about. Well, We've got to close the gap a little bit. Right, and, and the thing, like, what started for me is I became the head chef in a neighborhood that where I, my mom and my family all lived in the neighborhood. So I was like, I'm going to, I have to take care of them. It's family, you know? So I stuck with it all this time. But, you know, this fish fraud is is something that is, you know, it's rampant, you know, I mean, you know, you could tell you could preach this from the roof. You know what I mean? Well, so someone did ask a question earlier on on, on the Twitter, uh, which is, OK, so say you're not getting all of your fish directly from Tommy or, uh, or at the tuna Harvard Oxide Market. Uh, then what do you do? You have to ask the questions that you said. Now, maybe you get the answer. Maybe you don't even understand what the answer is. But the more you ask, then the more the provider feels responsible to actually you know, ascertain it and get it to you, correct? Absolutely. And so, you know, the, the, like, first thing is know your source, buy local, know your source. And then, there, look, there are some apps, there are some websites, there's some ways, at least on a sustainability factor, but that's only one part of the equation uh, to figure out, you know, where, where your fish lies. Um, Noah has a great program called Fish Watch. Right. Yeah. right. I'm going to plug yeah. on Heidi's Absolutely. Behalf. And, 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 uh, and uh, <laughs> six years ago, we, I made these edible QR codes that linked my customers directly to fishwatch.gov and, and to all the information. And that's one thing about being here in San Diego. When you ask this question about what in particular are we supposed to carry, that's why when people ask me, I'm like, this is the Super Bowl of sustainability. Because if I go to Tommy, he's going to tell me the truth. If I want to know, well, okay, what do I serve when I'm in Arkansas and I don't know what to do, you can literally go to fishwatch.gov, which is, you know, what, 250 scientists in the Highland Migratory Species Lab here at NOAA, right? Um, Something fewer, like that? Fewer than that. Right? So that's, what that was, so that's we'll, what they tell we'll me. round up a couple round hundred. Round up a couple hundred, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nationally, maybe. But, but that's what they tell me, right? Is that here we are, and we are the people in all the world that study all the highly, highly migratory species, which are all the tuna, all the swordfish, a few, all the marine mammals, and a few different species of shark. And that, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is studied here in San Diego. So that's where I was, and I went, and I was like, well, who knows this? I called them, and then they had answers. So you could find it out. So the, you can find the information, but you have to just be diligent about it, and you have to be like, you know, you have to look at a crowd like this and be like, well, I'm going to serve them the very best that I can find, period, and help make our movement here from Rick's restaurants to what we're doing here in San Diego, that we have a, a push that is correcting these problems because we're all asking these questions. We're all telling these stories. We're not just studying it here. We're also teaching it. So that's my lead into you, Amro, who you're teaching the next generation of, of, of marine biologists, of scientists, those who would study and help us stay on top of these issues. So chime in. So, and you're the most well-dressed guy on the panel, by the way. True, true. <laughs> so um, I... I think the nice thing about what I'm hearing is that the interests of conservation and human health align. So what everybody's talking about tonight is this idea that you should know where your food comes from. And one of the reasons why people were very worried about farmed fish was that there were studies that showed that farmed fish had high levels of contaminants that are harmful to human health. So um, people wanted to avoid them. The challenge has really been to explain to people what they should and shouldn't eat. And I think in, in that regard, we're not doing a great job. The information's really confusing. The, the story, the little anecdote I like to tell about that is, 
if any, I assume you've all been to Costco or, or not to buy food. Yeah, and and if you look, if you go to the no if you go to the fish aisle at Costco, there's a sign, and that sign says in big red letters, "Warning." And so, so that's the first sign that something's wrong. Is normally your food doesn't say warning. And then, and then the second sign is what the warning actually says. So the warning says, um, pregnant women, um, nursing women, and women who may become pregnant should not eat the following kinds of fish. And I'd like to point out, that's a lot of women. So... Um, so there's no question we need to do a much better job of explaining to people what it is they should and shouldn't be eating from the sea. And this is where I think the conservation and health interests really align beautifully. Okay. So back, back to the feed, you know, which was a great topic. If you don't eat meat, and back in the day when it all started, they were using beef, chicken, pork byproducts, chicken blood, and even the inside quill of the chicken feathers for a binding agent and a 3M meat glue product to dehydrate into the pellet and shooting it out into the ponds. But yet you don't eat meat, yet fish that you're eating does. And so it falls into what you, you, right. your nutrition. Right, some other was. very nasty things from, from what our earlier discussion today. So, you know, what I see with, with clients is a, just a level of confusion and most people that come to me, their first thing that they want to do is a detoxification program. Can we do a detox? And so my answer to that is always, well, let's take a look at your diet. What are you detoxing? When, well, let's take a look and see how we can avoid those inputs. And I think that's what this conversation is about that's eye-opening to me to really, I, I have to be honest that I too have painted farm-raised fish with a, a really pretty nasty brush because of there's just no education even to the to the health professional let alone to the consumer that we do have a uh, you know a really good alternative available if we're looking at American aquaculture and I really think that the stories that we hear about what's happening in Asia are chilling and devastating to anyone's health. So I, you know, I for one am are eager to learn more about it and to pass that on. But on the toxicity, oh, sorry. Oh, no, well, did you I, raise your hand? I, I raised my hand. No, because the because I have a, I have a, I have a serious question. And, and that is, and that is what, what is this that we hear, what they call the BAP certification process? That's what I've heard about, right? These best, best aquaculture best practice. Best aquaculture yes. practice. So, so is that a real thing? Can I put faith in that when I see that this, oh, this is a well, it's one a four-star star. system too, you know. So right. you get, with one star, you're not doing such a great job, but you still have a certification. I so think that, so you had alluded earlier that there's a lot of confusing stuff out there. and People, you know, you need to figure out what, and, and there is, there's so many certifications there's so many programs, and there's so many. There's mixed participation between industry and NGOs and and uh, research. But what's happening is there's there is consolidation, and a few will bubble to the top, and there'll be global. There's global organizations, Global Gap, and some some other seafood certification programs that will, some some will come to the top, some will fall out. Monterey Bay, but has ideally one. Monterey Bay. So ideally, like everybody wants some common standard that means the same. And so we're not confused. Well, but I know, Tommy, it is you a have very some... confusing. And, and like, so, like, can you trust it? I mean, hopefully. <laughs> but you have some. There's uh, a fish lot of work to be done. That 
is Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood highly rated? Exactly, Bay. highest yeah. rated, best practices. Is that farmed? Yeah. yeah, farmed. We we carry we carry farmed fish. I mean, for me personally, I would love for everybody in this room to buy fish at Catalina, and I'm sure probably a good 45 percent does already. But <laughs> yeah, Catalina. If you're not sure, please, I beg you, come see me ask questions, learn what we have in the case, and then go ahead and go to Point Loma Seafoods or Pelly's or wherever and buy the same thing. I don't care, but come see me and come educate yourself. And when you go to sushi bars like Rob's Place, Land and Water or Wrench and Rodent, ask questions and just, I mean, educate yourself on what is really going on, please. I think then, asking just, questions yeah. is really... Uh, sorry. And then, no, just the, so you were mentioning, you know, there's larger companies, seafood companies that are participating in this movement mm-hmm. to, you know, make better seafood choices yeah. available to, whether it's aquaculture or fishes, to, to the consumer or to the restaurants or whatever. And those guys are driving the certification process too. So at some point, there'll be a credible certification that hopefully can be, you know, well, then it all Just, goes back to local again. The closer you are to the oh, source, sure. the more information you're going to know, yeah. right? Yep. From the consumer's perspective, I, I can understand why this room is packed right now. Yeah. I mean, this is a really confusing thing to have to take on on top of the rest of your life and everything else that's going on. To be able to make the most sustainable decision when it comes to seafood is a confusing topic. Well, but, especially but if you're I trying think... to deal with my health, the health of my community, and the health of the planet. You know, we talked about this earlier this week. You know, we're trying to, you know, most people don't get up every day thinking about, what I want to make the worst decision for me, my community, and the world. No, we want to make a good, I mean, I, I still have, you know, faith in humanity. Uh, we want to make good decisions, but it's really hard to get information. And so they're getting it on produce is tough, on, you know, land-based animals is tough, but Boy, is it toughest, it seems to me, on seafood. There isn't as much out there. And maybe, look, there's a lot of academic research, but it's dated when it comes to aquaculture. So it, you know, has old data that doesn't necessarily reflect the advancements. Uh, You know, understanding, let's say toxicity. That's something we haven't even gotten to. But before we go to more of sort of the the downside, I want to follow up on something you said earlier, which is that some fishermen are going to go into the fish farming. But there will be those who don't follow. And now I want to talk about future opportunities here for those who aren't interested in that and who want instead to have the direct market. So let's take that as a perfect time to talk about tuna harbor dockside market. Yeah, I think, well, you know, you can speak, I mean, really well to that because you support the fish. I mean, not everybody supports fishermen, but you're buying directly from those guys and helped helped that. No, I mean, for me, you know, like everything we're talking about, like toxicity or aquaculture as the right process or the history of San Diego being the tuna capital of the world or, you know, looking at the legacy of Tommy's family over here and everything that we put into it. For me, as a restaurant owner, you know, I will work, you know, 80 hours a day and, you know, get work, close the restaurant down at two in the morning. And then I'll tell everybody, all right, I'm going Saturday morning to the market and I'm trying to support it as hard as I can because it takes all these questions out of the equation. Yeah. It very simply takes them all away. One and, stop and, from the dock. At one stop. And, 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 you know, it. yeah, we're lucky that we happen to be in close proximity to this one particular outlet. And I realize that the rest of the world doesn't have this. But it does need to be recognized. And I think that it does kind of need to be uh, put into something that is in perpetuity forever because of the heritage of our particular city. 
and where we've come from. And one of the things that the fishermen tell me down at the dockside market is they tell me, what you know what the number one most endangered species is down here at the market? Fishermen. The, the commercial fishermen. <laughs> because of the age gap and because of this gap, this knowledge gap, and because of the, you know these older generation cats, maybe they didn't know as much or they didn't want to embrace younger fishermen coming in because they're protective of their spots. Or I mean, you know the stories better than I do, you know? Yeah, 1978 is when the first bumper sticker came out. Endangered species, U.S. American commercial fishermen. And when the tuna cannery started to to feel the pressure of the environmentalists, they came out with big tuna cans. And there's a couple of old tuna fishermen in here. Um, We have some at Catalina. 1978, endangered U.S. tuna men in a can. So so for for me, like, I've I've learned from talking to the scientists here, I'm not a scientist, I'm a chef. And I can learn and I can do the best I can at the restaurant. And I'm not a fisherman, I'm not a fishmonger, but I do rely on this fish to make a, a livelihood. So I, what I try to do is to put all this into an equation, and I, I'm, I'm not alone. I'm sitting to one of the most recognized guys in the world right here who does the same thing that I do. And that, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, we have this unique opportunity to capitalize on that is, answers all of our questions, you know. And, I have a couple observations. Yeah. I'm just I trying, can see him getting try, antsy here. Trying to be quiet. <laughs> well, I'm always antsy. <clears throat> but, um... Is, is, is a, we have such a, a stronghold on the top of the food chain, and that's the problem. You know, eat locally. So if top of the food chain is local, good for you. But if you don't have access to it, you know, then eat lower on the food chain. Less toxicity, because the fish haven't been around that long. Those are the fish, that the, the ones that have the toxicity ate. They got little trace of trace amounts. And most of them are loaded with omega-3 fatty acids, which we all want in the first place. You know, that's what, that's what helped create the, the, the increase of interest in, in seafood. It was just the idea of the nutritional value of it. It brushes, washes our brains and helps our cardiovascular. It, it, there's, there's hardly a part of your body that eating seafood won't help. It's the truth, you know. But try as a chef, right, who cares about this and who's been, you know, talking about it for 25 years of this 40-year career, to buy a box of beautiful, fresh sardines and get them into your restaurant in Las Vegas. I mean, I mean, I used to pick these things up at the Fulton Market. They're exciting, but I'd have to preserve them because you're not going to sell a box of anchovies or sardines or anything. It takes a long period of time to do it, so you have to. So somewhere along, I mean, I, right now what I'm looking at is I'm looking at canned anchovies, canned sardines in Portugal sustainable sources. And I'm thinking of really cool ways of serving them at the table side. This is what you want. I'm, I'm serious that I'm doing that. I mean, I'm going to figure out a way that we're going to, I'm going to sell in Las Vegas really super high quality canned products so that people can possibly start to connect with because that, that's what washes through your body and makes you healthy. Not a pill. Not something that says, you know, it's, you know, omega-3s in this pill. Most of them are rancid, by the way. So it, also, it also gets back to, ultimately, to food security, too, because every step you take up in the food web, you lose 90% of the biomass. So mm-hmm. if we can feed, eat lower yep. in the food web, there's, you know, there's much less of an overall impact on the ecosystem. That's it. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. I know a guy yeah. in Portugal yeah. <laughs> that'll <Everybody>. help you. <laughs> 
Well, just as there are, are, are ways to um, evaluate the quality of aquaculture and, uh, and fish, there's also uh, ways to evaluate the quality of fish oil. And there's IFAS. Have you heard of IFAS? It's the International Fish Oil Standards. And so you can actually put in the name and the lot number of your fish oil supplement, and it will tell you about the contaminants both mercury and pesticides and, um, and it's, um, you know, various other, other things. But it, it's a really good um, tool because most Americans are so devoid of omega-3 in our cells that it's, you know, it's one of the major impetus toward chronic devastating disease that we have. So I agree with you. Eat bait first. I think that's a great policy. <laughs> but some of us do need to look at fish oil. And I test all my clients for their levels of omega-6, the inflammatory fatty acids, to omega-3s. And I, I can see that across the board, the paucity of, of the anti-inflammatory omega-3 is really, really quite astounding. It seems like we're, we keep coming back a little bit to toxicity, so let's talk about it a little bit more, because I think that, like many things, we've, we've done sort of a broad brush, whether it was mercury or big fish or tuna, right? Are all tuna created equal? Are they all the same? And, and is, you know, sort of does it matter how old they are, how big they are, where they're from, and which... So I, so, um, I think an, a really important point to remember is that for the average American the major source of contaminants in the diet is going to be from meat and dairy. And that's simply because we just don't eat that much fish as compared perhaps to people in other parts of the world. Um, The other thing to remember is that um, most fish are relatively low in contaminants, but certain fish are high. And those fish are, for example, very long-lived species that are high on the food chain that can have things like mercury in them, or extremely fatty fish that can have things like pesticides in them. And um, we don't yet have a great system of getting those fish out of the food supply. And that's where I think we really do need some um, technology to identify those fish a little bit earlier and get them out, since they account for a small fraction of all the fish in the ocean. Remember, the ocean's a really vast place. So not all tuna are created um, equally, and some tuna will have very low levels of mercury. Same species. Same species of tuna, uh, same size of fish, but just depending on where they're caught, will have very different levels of um, different pollutants in them. So I think, as, as I was mentioning earlier, that's where I think the, the first step is actually knowing where your fish comes from, because then you can actually do something about it if you find that there's a contaminant there that you're worried about. But testing these fish yeah, how would you find it? Cost, increases the cost of the fish. And we already have this, this, this discussion that people don't want to pay more. Sure. So, I mean, you know, so is, is, I mean, because that technology exists. You know, it does exist. I mean, when yeah. the, the Gulf spill, the oil spill, there was all kinds of testing going on. And t- right. Well, AMRO just did it. Right? How many contaminants did you look at? We looked at hundreds of contaminants in a recent study of ours, 247 contaminants at a cost of almost $3,000 per fish. So that, that should put in Don't perspective... Don't want to add that to your so dinner. That's, that's a jump. <laughs> I mean, so that's when we come back to that question of, of where your fish was caught and, and how and it was how caught, good even. And I mean, also how big you it can, is, too. And how big it is. So, so there are no, certain... We, we've talked about how, what kind, how big, and how old, but you raise a different point, which is how caught. 
how tell it's us caught. about that. Well, I mean, this is just one example, and I'm sure there, there are others that exist, but, but albacore tuna, for example. Sometimes you will go and buy canned albacore tuna in the store, and it says hook in line or troll caught tuna. That tuna, because of the catch method, is automatically selected to be swimming in surface waters. It's younger fish. It's got more omega-3s than, than its older brothers and sisters. And you've also got a decreased level of contaminants and mercury in it just because it's younger and smaller. And so it no hasn't bycatch. been out there. Sorry, say it again. Sorry, and no bycatch. And no bycatch, for that matter. So not only are you making the su- sustainable, responsible decision by, by getting hook in line or troll caught, T-R-O-L-L, Trolls are good. Trolls are good. That's just dragging hooks and lines behind a boat in the water. People often confuse it. So it's, it's, imper- it's really important to know how your fish was caught, where it was caught, and this will help inform um, decisions that are, that are lower in toxicity without adding a $3,000 price tag to each individual fish. Every road leads back to know your fishermen, right? It really does. On, whether we're yeah. talking about the environment, your human health, community health, it all, it's, it, you know, we kept saying, what are the easy answers we can tell people? And that, that one is the one we all, everything intersects back, you know, to this one answer. There's so much that goes on with that, especially in the high seas. Um, uh, there was a, a chef, if I may, Andrew, told a story about the human species as a virus, and the only way you kill the virus is to kill the host, and our host is our planet. And we're killing our planet. I mean, I've done it. I've, I've had too much fish in the net, nowhere to put it. I pumped 6,000 gallons of diesel over the side of the boat, put the fish on the boat. That's just one boat. We have massive problems of urban runoff up and down the left coast here in California. Everything runs to our oceans, and we're just polluting everything as we can. And as a tuna expert, I have never seen sashi as bad as I have within the last two years. I've cut plenty of tuna, trust me. What's sashi? Sashi. How do you describe sashi to somebody, you know, besides a a goopy, parasitic A goopy blob of undone jello in the middle of tuna. And, and we talked earlier today about the, um, about the tumors in swordfish and the highly migratory species. What I see on the high seas, way out, I mean, there's no, there's no waste management out there. There's no buoy dump that you pull up to and just dump everything. You just chuck it, pump it, and that's what's going on. And... and you know, everything is being brought into the left coast here on the United States. We have massive ships coming in with containers, and we're bringing all of that stuff in the, and the bilge water that we're bringing in from foreign countries that are being pumped out, supposed to be pumped so many miles offshore. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, especially if it's a little rough out and you're coming in and you want to hold on to that water to keep you down to the water level that you want to be for a safer ride. And so instead of being 13 miles outside Long Beach Harbor where you're supposed to be before you start pumping or whatever it is, you're two miles outside Long Beach Harbor and you're pumping that stuff and all of that water. So there's all these little factors and and it's like death by a thousand paper cuts we don't have enough band-aids well so then what's the answer to that what i you know what's what's striking me is that okay it's really really expensive to test for levels of um, pesticides and antibiotics and pcbes and ddt and all of these things that are in the water making their way into our fish 
so to me, that's not really an answer as to why we wouldn't do it, because. Well, I think well, there. Glad, I think there are you. two. So there are two solutions to that problem. First of all, whenever you're trying to get rid of something that's a problem in a supply chain, you don't test every single fish. You test some of them in order to get a representative sample and get a sense for how safe or clean that food supply is, much the same way the USDA doesn't check every single thing that you eat. Um, And the second answer, and maybe this is a chance to sort of plug the work that's happening at UC San Diego, is that there are um, a, a lot of technologies that are right around the corner that will let us look for a fraction of the cost of the traditional methods at the levels of contaminants in um, fish. So we are, we are around the corner from uh, kind of a revolution in how we test these kinds of compounds and determine their levels. Even an at-home test? Even an at-home test oh, or really? in other, other oh. settings, yeah. Swai is a farmed-raised catfish from the Mekong Delta, uh, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, I'd really like to see what that stuff is because you can get a container ship of that, four-ounce portions, vacuum-packed, skin off, bloodline out for a dollar three a pound. So now I want to switch for a second. Uh, whew, because I'm getting, like, uncomfortable and not hungry anymore. Um, but look, we talked about 90% import. What about export? Are we exporting from here, from our community, and oh, from yeah. the United States? Okay, so someone talk to us about Look exports. at our lobsters. Right. Our California lobsters is the most highly regulatory species that we have. Um, me, per, my personal opinion is I think it was a mistake that you could go and buy a lobster permit because the lobster price is so high to the fishermen that it's creating, and I'm probably going to get hammered for this, and I don't care. I got big shoulders. It's created a greed, and we're seeing new fishermen that are being caught with a massive amount of shorts, 100, 120 live short lobsters, and they're not being prosecuted. Me, personally, take their boat, take their tow vehicle, take their permit, take everything they got, and slam them because they're taking these short lobsters and they're selling them on the black market, and it's devastating the fishery for the guys that have been walking the line for 20, 30, and 40 years, and these new guys are coming in, and they're doing it wrong, and it's the greed because the market value of these crustaceans is so high in China that they can come to, you know, we're $20 a pound, $20, $21 a pound to the fishermen, plus free bait, and we're taking that lobster and we're shipping it to China. And back in the day, we used to see local lobster all over the place. Anthony's, Point Loma Seafoods, everybody had it. Brigantine, local lobster dinner, nineteen ninety nine. dollars Yeah, right. Now it's, now it's like a 95%, 90 to 95% exportation rate of that species alone. Of that species alone. I'm selling lobsters for $34.99 a pound. I mean, really? I don't, I don't no feel good about that. <laughs> we just don't see the value of our seafood in the United States. That's the problem. The world is willing to pay more. You know. We import 90%, and I believe, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think the exportation rate is around 33%. And the majority of that fish is our wild-caught, responsibly managed fish. And then, and then the majority of the fish that we're bringing in is unregulated, unreported, and, and illegally caught. But there's so much more that goes on it on board the vessel. So if I have a swordfish boat 
and they want to ban swordfish. I sit on the board of directors for CCA. They want to ban swordfish. I'm fighting and fighting and fighting. You know what? So, okay, we take down the Stars and Stripes. We put a foreign flag up. We go fish what we want, where we want, when we want, how we want. We kill whatever we want, and we still sell it to the U.S. It's interesting, isn't it, to think about that you're, when you're choosing your seafood, you're, you're not just thinking, you know, you're, you're making a, a decision about what kind of world you want it to be. Not, you are, of course, thinking about your health and your community health, but you're making a decision when you choose what you choose uh, as to, you know, what laws are being violated or what, you know, what laws are being enforced and, and whether you care. I mean, you know, and the thing is that in the United States, we've really come to expect food to be exceptionally cheap. Uh, you know, I think we, we, we do have, you know, we rank number one in the world in terms of affordability of food. We rank somewhere between 30 and 60th, I don't remember the current ranking, in healthfulness, right? So there's a real disconnect. It's ironic to me that we're, you know, exporting this highly valuable, good quality, sustainably caught, you know, seafood to someone else, and yet we're getting something in an unknown box of unknown origin. I mean, you know, we have to sort of think about that. That's not, you know, where we want to be. Those other countries have already destroyed their environment, so they see the value of it because they, oh, we're the last ones still doing it right. We're just slow learners. We don't appreciate the quality of the product that we have right here. I think from the consumer's perspective, it's really time to put our our money where our mouth is because there is that value-action disconnect. And um, it just comes back to a really simple idiom that that cheap fish is not good and good fish is not cheap. It's true about all food, right? (laughs) All food. Go ahead. I should, I, I just, I guess I want to interject that I often go to Tommy's to get seafood myself and there are, um, there are cheap pieces of fish right. that are very good. We just aren't used to eating them. Don't tell my boss that. I'm selling fish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cheap yeah. and inexpensive are two very yeah. different things. And um, I think... And what fish know. are less expensive? What, where are they on the food chain? I mean, we, uh, we bought... Or they're local. We bought um, which, m- Monchong ribs. You bought were, Monchong ribs. Which were $2.50 a pound. And we're... Um, were delicious and you're not going to find that on a menu except yeah. up at Rob's place right. and wrench and or a wrench. Also, yeah. there's there are like cuts of fish that we're not eating as an American populace. That, that's the point. There are cuts of fish. They're the the collar piece of a fish is some of the best part of that fish. But Don't we're tell just them that. They'll buy it all. <laughs> keep the price down. We're just we're not we're we're so used to getting that that bloodline remove that boneless yeah. filet that we want it to be really square like it came out of the Gorton's box right, <laughs> right. no no it's the, at our last panel and maybe I shouldn't say this but I we asked Tommy David was our chef and we said we don't want whole fish we want you to save all the cut scrap that you have from cutting everyone else's fish for the entire weekend and that's what we served everything we served was what we considered waste right it's except that it isn't and it was amazing and, and what you know David can do and any of the chefs up here can do we have to think outside of the the fish box. <laughs> well, if you if you look at if you look at the opa that we had, there's seven different cuts of meat in there. The abductor muscle, it's like the size of a frisbee, controls the pectoral fins. There's two of them, one on each side of the fish. You know what an opa looks like? Looks like a giant barbecued potato chip with fins. Okay. <laughs> and the opa muscle is so amazing that I guarantee you, you're not going to know it's a piece of fish. And it's cheap. It's six bucks a pound. I think something that's really important to note here is that we as an American populace really need to start diversifying the types of fish that we eat. 
Um, we can't keep going back to those top predators. It's not good for our health. It's not good for their stock health. But, but if you start eating fish that you've never heard of that are, that are domestically caught, you're already, you're going to remove pressure from those top predators. And you're really, um, you're really going to make the more sustainable choice. So Pacific and mackerel. And they taste good and they're cheaper. Grenadier, <laughs> thorny head. There are crazy fish out there that you've never even heard of before. But with the help of chefs like, like these two over here who are really putting those underloved, underutilized fish on the map, I think we really have a chance to, yes. to make the more sustainable decision. Yeah, and marketing is a nightmare when it comes to seafood because the people that originally named the fish, I think, were the fishermen. You know, at a bar. What'd you get? I got a couple of drums, uh, 12 croakers, and, uh, you know, and, and three wreck fish. These are really names of fish. You know, you know, Patagonian toothfish. I got a couple of toothfish. No, that's not for dinner for me, but I'll take the Chilean sea bass. Same fish, just name different. So, I mean, we have to understand that it's like, it, don't buy by the name. Buy by where it's from. Ask what it is. So laugh at the name. Find out where it's from. If you know that's clean water and it's a good source and you trust that they're not lying to you, it's not mislabeled, then just find out how they caught it. And I think, too, that places like the Dockside Market and Catalina Offshore can play a really big role because people trust the Dockside Market mm-hmm. and people trust you. So if they're coming in for it's fish, sad, you can say, huh? yeah, well, you know, well, try this one and, and here's some just suggestions for how you cook it up. You know, this is how you prepare it. Well, we have a small rinky-dink... I mean, it's rinky-dink <laughs> kitchen. And people come and they ask, you know, what is, what is a mong chong rib? I'm like, sweet. Come on, let's do this. And fire up the peanut oil and throw that puppy in there and give it to them. And they go, really? I go, yeah. And they eat that and they go, oh, my God, this is amazing. I go, I know, and it's only two fifty a pound. Go get them. Because I got to move that stuff because it doesn't get better with age like beef. <laughs> I got to move it. <laughs> Most perishable inventory you can deal with. So there's a lot of bait and switch, uh, and pun intended. You know? So, but back to what you said earlier, you know, the big fish eat the small fish. So why don't you eat the small fish too? Right. So we have a lot of questions, some follow-up questions on how we fish and the kind of food. So let's start for a minute. So there's a couple questions here about making sure that. You know, good local fish is available in lower income communities, but we've said there are some cost effective options that are also local and sustainable. Yes? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is a bigger question is how do we get them in the school lunch menu, but oh. <clears throat> that's, that's, a, that's a lot of panels uh, by itself. <clears throat> but, but I think that's a fair, we, look, as we talk about it, it, this comes up every time as we talk about our food is very cheap. And, you know, we're shipping, you know, to other countries where they uh, treat it with more respect. But at the same time, we have to recognize the fact that there's a great number of people in our community and across our country who don't have a lot of extra money to spend on the next, you know, best thing. And so are there lower cost options? And tell us about them, chefs. Lower cost. You know, what are, what yeah, are some local, you know, sustainably caught fish? In the food. Catalina Offshore does have a product that's in the school system. We're, we are in the San Ysidro School District with the ground opa uh, abductor muscle. They came in, and I am not a chef <laughs> at all. But we ground that stuff up, and we made tacos, we made chili, we made meatballs, we made meatloaf, we made pastrami out of the muscle. 
And they're serving that at the schools along with some of our other products, the ground pieces of OPA. Once you lay out an OPA and you take that loin and the pieces of that, we're grinding up and we're serving it to them. And also the belly, the belly of the OPA has so much fat in it. You can make bacon out of this stuff. Rob, you know, you've been playing with it for years with me now. Bacon. (laughs) You make bacon out of a fish belly. Seriously. I just bought a pallet. A pallet, it's going, to, it's going to be frozen, of uh, buffalo fish. It's, it's ribs, like Monchong yeah, yeah. ribs. And they're Tennessee River. And they became a problem. You know, in the 1930s, they were, there was a popular fish. You know, certain ethnicities and, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, income levels found it a very attractive fish. And, and it was difficult to bone out. It was difficult, but it was, it was solid meat. You know, it came from fresh water. And so now they, they, they call me up. Just to, uh, to, to try it out, you know, to, one of the, uh, you know the doctor. They send you a pallet. Doc, doc, <laughs> no, no, I bought it because um, I, I found out I, they sent them to me, and they sent this rack of ribs, and I looked at them, and I was at home. I just so happened to have been playing around with pork ribs, and I got a smoker in my backyard. I took them home, and I put the same dry rub on them, cooked them up, and then I put the barbecue sauce and smoked them, and put them in my house. Tried them out; they were mushy. I just wrapped them up, put them in my fridge, brought them to work. You know, a big tray of them. I gave them to my guys in the kitchen. I said, you know, guys, you want to. You want to just, you know, play around with these, see what we can do with them, you know? Okay. They didn't get to them for three days because uh, we were busy. So after three days, I see these guys, my whole staff is around this table, and they're all eating like, you know, like they're hitting this thing like, you know, like, uh, like, like crazy. I'm like, what is it? Oh, this is amazing. They're making tacos out of them. I said, tacos? I didn't even think of tacos. The texture had changed because it sat in the refrigerator, blah, blah. Anyway, long story short, here's a fish that became problematic because in the, after the 1930s, you know, another prettier fish swam by, a big mouth, a big mouth bass or something. Everybody, anglers came in, more value. Everybody just forgot about this fish. Well, that fish still lived in there, and they started eating and getting bigger and bigger, and the population started to become problematic for those people that wanted to catch the big mouth bass. So now they want to make, a, they want to make a, you know, bring value back to that so that we can bring more of a balance back. So that's where I came in and made, you know, so these stories happen constantly. This is one story, one species out of millions that are available you know, we just have to play around with it and, and, and find ways to do it. And the reason I bought a pallet is because those tacos, we're going to open up chains across America. <laughs> what a- <laughs> now we got hungry again. I'm glad we're off toxins. Um, what about the person at home who, who doesn't have your skills and, you know, the, your access to also incredibly skilled people? You know, the follow-up question is, that says, a uh, line caught tuna and safely farmed fish is desirable. That is for people of means. And so the question is, you know, is there a sort of, in addition, you know, to a value action gap, is there a learning gap? Is there, and how do we fill that so that people are more comfortable with other cuts or other bits and parts that's affordable and manageable to... Well, did we, yes. do, the, did we do that squid topic? Did we have the, the symposium on squid, like $2 a pound, right? Were, were you there? No. We had a whole talk about market squid and what, you know, have, you know, how hard it is to get fresh local market squid because they send it overseas to get processed, but... You're still looking at a very cheap protein that ranged from two to four dollars a pound. That was, you know, easily and I accessible. Think, I think really having um, that there's a lot of fish fear. There's there's the sustainability question, and then you finally decide, okay, I've made the right decision. And you get home and you look at it, and you don't have those skills. It's it doesn't come easily to you. And really, I think that the, if you're working with fresh fish, if you're working with fish. That is, that is this high-quality domestic product, salt and pepper, olive oil, pan. 
That's it. That's all you do. I used to deliver uh, fish directly from fishermen to 500 families in the Southern California area as part of sort of a CSA, but for fish. And I would create these. I love working in the kitchen. So I would create these elaborate recipes. Here's something new you can do with this product. And it would go out two recipes with every single delivery. And I'd ask all of my customers, what is it that you're going to do with the fish this week? Are you going to use one of the recipes that I made for you? And they said, Sarah, honestly, we're exhausted. All we're going to do is do olive oil, salt, pepper, throw it in the oven, throw it in a pan. And the, the quality speaks for itself. You really don't need to do these crazy, you don't need to be a chef in order to work with really fresh fish. Boy, I can attest to that. So, I, well, yeah, there you I, go. I, I, I mean, we, we used to, I lived on the Big Island 10 years. You know, we were talking about how long over there. Yeah. And all we would do is literally, you'd take a, a, a fish and slice it open and take all the visceral stuff out of it. we put mayonnaise in it and wrap it in aluminum foil and throw it on a fire. I mean, you literally do nothing to it. It's, it's, it doesn't get more basic, you know. Now you I mean, just included my husband's favorite ingredient right, in the world. Know, so. camp, campfire. <laughs> if he's watching... Mayonnaise is the answer. <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking a lot about fresh fish, but there are also some good processing options that can add value and would also be a way potentially to get some of these fish that are lower in the tro- trophic level and get them to communities that can't afford to buy that nice fresh loin. What do you elaborate a little bit more? Well, I know, I can't remember if it was Starkist or one of the tuna canners, they actually put like olive oil and maybe some rosemary and yeah. put stuff in a pouch and you could buy yep. it that way. And, and, and if you get creative, there may be other fish you can do something like that with. Like, you know, mackerel is something that they catch that not much people, people don't do much you with. You can get the mackerel in olive oil. You can get mackerel with capers and mustard. You can get mackerel in tomato sauce. Starkiss came out with 12 different pouch bags with 12 different flavorings in it and all of that. And so you can. But you, you touched on something, um, Michelle, especially here in San Diego. We have food deserts. National city for one is a food desert and we have single we have single parents that are working two jobs and trying to go to school to make a better life for themselves and for their children that are not feeding their kids properly they're doing a drive-through grabbing pizza fast food burgers and stuff like that putting it on the table the kids eat it they go right back to the couch they play the video games and they become fat lethargic and sick so how do you change that with seafood by getting out there and being active. I think that's a bigger issue than seafood. Um, and Michael Pollan has, Michael Pollan has um, famously pointed out that the cheapest calories in the supermarket are the ones that are the worst for you. Yep. So um, I, th- I think that's a much bigger social and policy issue that we have to address if we want to keep making certain products cheap. Um, things that appear cheap sometimes are not. Um, because there are health risks associated with eating them or because there are costs baked into producing them that you don't see at the time you buy them, but you pay for, uh, no doubt. So I, I think that's a big policy issue that, that needs to be addressed. And seafood doesn't enjoy many of the subsidies that other kinds of food that's products That's a question do. from the audience is, is uh, what about that fact? Like there, clearly there are subsidies at play that make bad food you know, less expensive than, than good food. We all understand what we're talking about. But it doesn't seem that that exists in the seafood arena. Uh, you know, is there a way, for example, should the government subsidize the toxicity testing? Or is there some other way 
well, and again, that goes back to it's a larger question, but what about seafood in particular? They did with the new drop gear for swordfish, Mm. the new buoy gear, um, outdated generators, outdated main engines. There was a swap out program. So there's a little bit here and there, but it's certainly not like the government's going to come in and give you a bunch of money to go fish this species like they do growing corn or like they do growing soybean and stuff like that. There's no commodity fish. And to be honest with you, the fishermen don't want them on the boat. And they don't want, you know, that's why they're fishermen is because they want to go out and do it themselves, you know. Listen, we have kept our panelists and all of you here longer than we intended. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you for staying this long. And we appreciate it. And thanks for staying focused. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.